Now this is nearing the end. It's not the end. It's the penultimate, the second to the last, all right? Part of our opening year series, as we already alluded to, on this whole idea of purposeful positioning. And it's been a great journey to take. I've loved it. I didn't know how it was going to go when we when initially prepared for it. Philippians 4, just this single chapter, we've talked about how we can apply this to our lives and position ourselves for a growing and expansive life with God. Not a perfect, trouble-free one, but a growing one. We've been talking a lot about contentment. And it, it was struck us that you know the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this uh, letter and speaks so much about what contentment is, that he wrote it from the context of one who was confined. We talked about that. He was under house arrest in Rome. He was not free to go about where he wanted to, you know, talk about Christ when he wanted to. He was, he was stuck awaiting his trial. He was also, remember, for the first time, really, in his whole life, dependent. He couldn't work. He was accustomed to providing for his own, uh, his own needs. He was, at this point, stuck. He needed to pay his bills. He needed support. The churches rallied behind him. Many people rallied behind him. One of those churches was the church at Philippi. Paul writes this letter as a response in many ways to their um, compassionate loyalty that they demonstrated in a tangible way to him. And so that sets up where we've been. And uh, just quickly looking at the 10th verse of the 4th chapter, just retouching very briefly where we've been. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again, Paul writes. I know you've always been concerned for me. You didn't really forget me, but you just didn't have the chance uh, basically, the, their gift had been delayed. It finally arrived. He was deeply appreciative that they had chose to step up in a time of challenge for him. And yet he felt compelled to qualify the fact that even though he was in need, he really was never in need. Look what he says, verse 11. Not that I was ever really in need, for I've learned. Key. We talked about this, right? I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. We talked about how contentment is something we can learn and grow in. And it can be enlarged in our lives. How to do it. Very important. Something that is not necessarily comes natural all the time for us. I think particularly in times of difficulty or struggle or disappointment or uh, when there's a lengthy delay in an answer to a, a situation that is frustrating to us, we often in our angst and anxiety find ourselves you know, easily dropping into attitudes that aren't helpful. And Paul had talked about, and, and, a, and a kind of reckless discontentment begins to emerge in our lives. And Paul had talked about how he had learned to be content. And he actually said that he had, he had learned to be content in a, in a variety of ways. Look what he writes. He says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. Basically, I've, I've lived extremes. Uh, I've learned how to have an, an extraordinary amount of blessing and abundance. And he says, and, and to have no needs whatsoever. And I've learned to be content there not let it get to me, get to my head. I've also learned how to basically have nothing. I've learned how to be hungry. My stomach's been empty. I've, I've gone hungry for many, many days. He talks about how he was persecuted. He's been, he was beaten, left for dead many times, barely able to crawl out of a, out of a hole, that beaten, beaten up and left for dead. I mean, Paul had, had experienced the swath of, of life at its height and at its depths. He says, I've learned how to live on almost nothing or with everything I've learned. Here's the key word here. The secret, the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty one, with plenty or with little, and here's that secret. It's going to sound so simple. Paul says, you want to know what that secret of living is? Listen, it is this. I can do all things through Christ. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. The older version says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My secret of living contentedly is connected to my life in Christ. And he makes this very clear connection here. And now, uh, verse, the 13th verse is one of the more often quoted verses. Uh, it's a very well-known verse. It's a great promise. We all get that. 
we can appreciate it at that level, at a surface level, that's good. But I wanna, I wanna take a moment and plunge deeper into this, into this, what does this actually mean? What did Paul mean? How can this really make a difference for us? Well, I think a lot of us understand, and the scriptures teach us, and, and we probably, many of us have found this to be true experientially, that when we genuinely welcome the Lord into our lives, um, that something is altered at a spiritual level. There, there is something that changes. A dynamic occurs when we genuinely confess Christ and welcome him into our lives. And this is captured in, and there's a couple of key verses I just want to put up for us that remind us of this truth. And I think it's worth revisiting every now and then. I think it's actually very important. Because I don't even want to make the assumption that everybody here has actually even reached this place. I know there are many who are seeking. And uh, some of us are finding in a place where we're at, the, we're at the verge of opening up our heart to Jesus in an intentional way. Others of us are like, you know, we're, we're basically, some of us are prodigals. We wandered way off, but we're coming home. And this is a homecoming for us. I was thinking about Romans 10, 9. This is what it says. Let's put it up. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The essence of salvation is contained in this verse. It's interesting because it, it contains the idea of confessing, speaking forth a belief. One of the real benefits, and, and, and by the way, if, if some of us get to a place where we go, you know, I want to do this. Yeah, you know, after service, there's, there's a team of people on the side in the connection area. They'll pray with you, and, 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 and really, you can start. So if you've never done it, you can start today. It could be your birthday, in a way, a spiritual birthday today. It could be awesome. Some of us might be coming home. We want prayer. We want to start again, refresh, reset. Here's the deal. There's another verse in Revelations 3.20. It says this. Again, we're talking about the reality of Christ living in us. Jesus said these words. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Now, I want us to get the picture here of the Lord. He, the Lord describes himself this way. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice, if my voice touches you, open up that door and opens the door, I will do what? I will come in. And, I, and look at what Jesus says. And I will dine with you. I will dine with him and, and, and eat with me. And, and this whole idea, what, what does it speak of? What's the picture of here? I mean, you think about it. Of all the, one, there's one thing's for sure. The Lord does not kick open a door. All right? He waits for a door to be opened. Here's the deal. God doesn't force his way. He'll knock. That's interesting. The, the Lord of glory will, it knocks on the door. He says, let me in. Well, welcome me in. I wait to be welcomed in. I will come. I want to come, but it's your call. Then when we open up the door, what does Jesus say? I want to come in. I want to be in your life. That's a very relational statement, isn't it? It reminds us that it's not just about believing the right things, which is important, or where we're heading, which is important. It's also about a relationship here on earth that is genuine and real and honest and rich. Think about one of the most um, beautiful gifts in life. And we have, we have beautiful gifts in life. Gifts that when we're done, don't leave us the worse off, but we're better, we're refreshed. One of the most wonderful things in life that we maybe can even take for granted is to have a, a genuinely wonderful time of sharing with another friend or two or with our family or with people we care for around a meal together on a table, talking with one another, sharing our hearts, our lives, our joys, our struggles, our stories. It's the way God wired us. We're better that way. We, we, we sometimes connect, and, and you know, a lot of it has to do with being open and, and uh, you know, we, we talk about how the Lord wants to really engage our lives. Think about what is Jesus saying here? He said, I really want to know you. Think about that. 
I love this. I want to know your life. I want to know your struggles. I want to listen. I want to, I want to sit and I want to have a meal together. I mean, that is a very relational thing. It speaks of intimacy. We always talk about what intimacy is. Into me see. See me for who I am. I share with you. You share with me. We share our story. It's about this is what the Lord wants to do in our life. I love that. I think that's such an amazing thing. Now, Paul, just kind of keeping that in mind, because we're talking about what happens when we open up our hearts to Jesus. You know, Paul talks about this secret of the power of Christ at work in our lives. When Christ comes, we have access to something. He calls it the secret. Look, at, look in Colossians 1 with me. I put this in the handout as well because it's a complimentary piece, verses 25 to 27. Look at this. He says, God has given me the responsibility. Paul's writing here to another church. He's saying he's given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept, here it is, secret. For centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed. It's been revealed to the people who are God's, who open their hearts to him. For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you, Gentiles, as well, as well as the Jews. For Jew and Gentile, Paul himself, a Jewish um, a man, committed fully to Christ. And this is the secret. Here it is, secret again. Here is the secret. Christ lives in you. There's the secret, Paul says. And that, this gives you the assurance of sharing his glory. Now, the point is that in some mysterious but tangible way, every true believer, every genuine confessor has been given this wonderful promise of the Lord's near presence. Do you see this? And here it is. It's what Paul describes as, here is the secret. is Christ living in you. Now, we talk about this all the time, and yet we understand, I, I hope we do, that there is, and this is where we're going to plunge deeper, that there is actually a difference between having a knowledge of something and actually accessing it. It's one thing to say, I know, I know that I have you know, Christ with me, but there's something different about accessing the power of Christ in our lives. You know, I think about, and this is going to be a very simple, crude kind of illustration, or at least simple, all right? And it's almost like a, a light fixture that is, is meant to shine. But it, it, everything in it is ready to go. It just, it just, there's an outlet, though. It's got to get plugged into. And when that plug goes in, there's a, the power is there, but the power has to be accessed. And when that power is accessed, that light can shine. It's the same way, in so many ways, with Christ. In fact, this is what Paul is saying. And I kind of, you know, because he's implying that, look, the kingdom is within you. Learn how to access that. And it will teach you contentment and help us to be content through any situation we walk through. I put this little paraphrase of Philippians 4.13 on the top of the handout there. Uh, basically, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look, I've learned how to access the strength of Christ so that it can sustain me in any situation. And I mean any, anything, anything that life throws, it can sustain me. That's what Paul's saying. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember, that is following on the heels of him just talking about his condition, his situation. I I'm really, I'm really don't need anything because, you know why? I've learned. I've learned how to live in a contented way. I've learned how to have much. I've learned how to, how to have little. I've learned how to you know, be on the top, and I've learned how to be on the bottom. And I can tell you, I've learned this. I've learned this because, and the key, he says, is this, that I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned how to access the strength of Christ. And because I've learned how to do this, he says, I can actually walk through anything. And I mean anything that life throws at me. Now, that's an intense truth. And I was reminded when I was thinking about Paul, and he's talking about the secret 
of contentment and how it's learning how to access the power of Christ that is within us. That when we welcome him in and his real presence is there, that there is a power source available. I was reminded of, an, and he was talking about touching Christ in a real way, learning how to do that. I was reminded of this remarkable incident that, that really, I don't think there's anything like it that occurred um, in the ministry of Jesus. It's in the Gospels. It's in three of the Gospels, not in the Gospel of John. And it talks about this amazing moment where there's this woman who's in an extraordinarily difficult situation in her life. And she does something that is so rare that it's, it's just not common. It didn't happen often and barely at all that I can think of quite like this. And yet it sort of illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. Look with me in, in Mark 5. Because we're talking about a woman here who um, had a disease. She's a woman who we're told had a disease. It says here, a woman in the crowd has suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. It's in the handout right there. So she has this blood disease. We don't know what it was. We know it was 12 years. And we're also told that, the, the, you know, that she had spent all of her money trying to get better. And if anything, she had not, far from getting even a little bit better, she had actually gotten worse and suffered a lot along the way. And part of the reason was, look, look what it says here. It says that she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had actually spent everything that she had to pay them. Uh, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Now, again, when we think about a doctor in the first century, we need to really alter our perception of what a doctor is compared to what we have right now. Um, we live in a, in a period of extraordinary um, technological advancement. And just in the last 100 years, leaps have been taken in terms of just what we understand at a medical level. But you got to understand, at, and in the day of Jesus, in, in the day that this woman would have lived, first century Palestine, uh, there was such rudimentary knowledge um, those who qualified as doctors would, would hardly look like a doctor, what we think of as a doctor. Uh, depending on where it was and what one's locale, it could be some combination of mixtures, you know, things passed down, uh, cures that had been sort of part of folklore combined with some degrees of superstition. The bottom line is this. And this, by the way, this is true, has been, was true for a number of centuries just until recent times. One could go to a doctor and far from coming out better, could actually come out worse than when one, one went to them. It was, it was it, in her case, I was struck by the fact that it says not only did she spend all of her money trying to get better, her disease had weakened her to such a degree, but also we're told that she had suffered at the hands of many which means some of them had some very crude methods of trying to get her better that had caused her suffering to be even more acute, and yet nothing had helped. And so she is in this desperate place. Now, how she comes to the conclusion to do what we're about to see she does, it's hard to say. I mean, it's like somewhere in her mind, in her weakened condition, and by the way, when you have a blood, when you have a blood disease, over time, get weaker and weaker and weaker. And I think that has to be factored in when we look at what happens. Because here is this woman with her, who is diseased and weakened and now has nothing. She hears about Jesus. And Jesus is moving through a town. And she knows he's coming. And somehow, someway, she thinks in her mind, if, if I can only get to him and even just touch his robe, I believe I will be healed. And again... How she came to that conclusion, what caused her to be so desperate, we don't know. But what we do know is, and look what happens. It says here that, so she heard about Jesus, verse 27, 
She heard about Jesus, and so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe because she thought, if I could just... Now, again, this is not a person with strength. You, there's people everywhere. Also, Jesus is not just walking by himself. We know he's surrounded by a crowd of people. He's got his disciples. He's got those who, who are attached to the whole sort of group that's sort of connecting and following and associating themselves with Jesus. There's the curious, the onlookers. It's an event. Jesus is coming through town. There, we know that on other occasions, people have to climb up on buildings. They have to climb up and look on a tree. In Zacchaeus's case, there was a guy, he was looking down. He was wanted, people wanted to see him. But here, she gets in her mind, I got to touch him. I don't know how I'm going to get to him, but I got to touch him. And it struck me that she had to get really low to have a shot at this, and she didn't have much strength in her. So this was no, I mean, in our mind's eye, we got to see it. I mean, she's out there, and she's reaching, and she's, look, she's on the ground, I suspect. There's this moment where it says that she decided, I just got to get him. I just got to get him. And somehow she gets through the crowd, and she's finding her way. And I see it as, I see it as just that last bit. She grabs it. And all of a sudden, it says, immediately, immediately. Maybe, and I don't know, through the dirt, whatever. I don't know how it was. It was like, but she gets, the, she gets it. When she gets it, all of a sudden, it says, the Bible says that strength shoots through her body. Now, you and I, we know what it's like to, be, to get better. When we're, when we're sick, it kind of, a lot of times we take some medicine and over time we start to feel better. You know how we know a lot of times? Our energy starts to return to us. Hers was a concentrated moment of healing. She felt an immediate infusion of strength shooting through her body. And that illness, what was present, she knew it. She goes, I, she knew she was healed. The moment it hit, and I don't know what that felt like, but it must have felt like when we get our energy back, but at a very strong, quick level. And as she touched him, she got him. And, it, and its strength, the Bible says here that it, that it came right out, right out, it says it came out of the Lord, flowed in. I mean, there was this moment. And what happens is remarkable. And I don't even try to understand it. People have been thinking about this passage for numbers of generations because it has amazing implications. Jesus stops and he turns to everybody, the crowd, he says, who touched me? And the disciples go, well, Lord, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? You're in the middle of a crowd. You're getting touched by people all over the place. He says, somebody touched me in a way that it was totally, he was like in a totally different, no, who touched me? And, and look what it says here. It says that Jesus, verse 30, and it's a reminder of his, his divinity and his humanity are here. In, in, and look what it says in verse 30. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. Somebody had accessed it. And he turned around in the crowd and, and, and he says, who touched me? And then you get the impression that, that, that he's looking, his disciples will look at the crowd passing around you, Lord, how can you say who touched me? But look at verse 32 is worth looking at again because it says he kept on looking around. No, 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 no. Somebody, somebody touched me. Where are you? I see, I see you. I see you. You. Right? Yes. And what does it say? And I believe she was scared to death because it was almost like she had robbed Jesus, right? <laughs> and she said, that was me. I, t I touched you. And uh, I love Jesus. It is beautiful. You don't need to be afraid of me. No healing coming back. That's yours. Daughter, I, daughter, I love that. Daughter. Mm. 
I tell you, your faith in me has made you whole. You, you go in peace. Peace be with you. Beautiful. Listen, we could spend a lot of time here. Never try to put Jesus in a box, by the way. There's no absolute formula. That's the mistake often made. I can't think of many occasions like this. In fact, most of the time, it's Jesus touching someone else. She touches him. Whoa. Wow. You know, there are, listen, there are different ways of touching Jesus. This is part of what Paul's talking about, this accessing God. Now, take what we just shared there. Let's flip it into this piece in Philippians. Let's go back to the secret of contentment. Again, accessing the strength of Christ. Go back to it. Go back to the Philippians. And now under, the, under this larger canopy of considerations, which all we're trying to do is put some things on the board that will allow us to, to use them as, as handles for us to then sit with longer and consider in more reflective ways and take us into deeper places. But initially, they're simple, on-the-board moments. Now, we're taking this piece and we're flipping it into the other piece that we just looked at. What, when it comes to Paul and this whole idea of contentment, how can this work together? Let us suggest that Paul, like the woman with the issue of blood, whom we just described, that, that Paul had learned how, look at this, how to lean into Christ. He had learned the art of leaning into Christ. And what I mean by that is he, he knew, he learned, he was saying, it's part of my secret to being so adaptable and flexible in my life, to being able to um, stay close to him when things are going great and the temptation is to say, I don't need you, and how to keep my attitude in check and not get bitter or angry or resentful to God somehow forsaking me when things are not going well. He goes, the, the key to that is I've learned how to access the strength of Christ. I've learned how to do this. I've learned how to draw strength from him. I've, I've learned listen, how to touch him in a, in a different way, in a different way. One of the great temptations Paul faced was the appeal, listen, of self-reliance because he was a man who had achieved so much. And he, I, I mean, I want to say this because he, he had a formidable intellect. You know, a lot of the disciples were very, very, what we would call common men. Peter is emblematic of the, the common man, a man of force and a man of his hands. He was real. So many of the disciples were right there. Matthew, and I'm off on a tangent now, was uh, a man who was accustomed to handling and managing money. He was a tax collector. Some of the disciples were different. Paul was this extraordinary intellect, a man of two cultures, totally at the elite levels of Hebrew culture, trained under the feet of the greatest teacher of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel, very well-groomed for a position, a Pharisee, he says, not just any Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was trained. I know it. I know it. It's, it is me. But a man also completely fluent in Greco-Roman culture, capable of interacting at high levels with philosophers, very acquainted with the philosophies and the ideas of the Greeks of his day, closely understanding the Stoics and their concepts of self-discipline. You combine all of that knowledge with the fact that he had this amazing capacity to concentrate. He, had a, he was a high achiever, a man who could see the field, if you will, and knew how to build things. He, he had great organizational thinking and a, a leadership capacity. I'm just saying, we're talking about a person who, listen, who in a normal situation, and he confessed it, he said it, the real challenge for him, self-righteousness, and pride, arrogance and hubris, so easy 
because he could easily say, I'm better, I'm smarter, I know more than these people. And you know what? He said, but I learned that that really didn't mean, can't compare to anything, that my, my knowledge and my strength and my capacities could only take me so far. And in fact, he says, I got to a point where I realized that the greatest opportunity I had was when I saw myself as being weak. For he says, when I understood my weakness, it opened me up to the possibility of acquiring an even greater power, the power of Christ at work in my life. And therefore, he said, I learned not to despise the areas of failure in my life, even the thorns, as it were, of my life, but instead to see them as an opportunity to see my own weakness and therefore be drawn to Christ in a new way that allowed me to receive his power so that I could do what I could have never done in my own capacity. So therefore, he says, I will rejoice in my infirmities because they have given me a gift, the gift of teaching me how to lean into Jesus and access him in a way that I would have never been able to do if it was all about me. Powerful truth, powerful technique a way of, of confronting life so that even the worst of life becomes an opportunity to draw closer to the power of the real Christ in us. Secondly, he not only had learned to lean into Christ, he had learned how to, key here, live below the surface, key for us. What that tells us is this. I think a lot of us understand a tree. We look at a tree and we go, well, that's an amazing tree. But any tree, anything, that, <laughs> the greater tree is underneath the ground. The root system is big. I think we've seen illustrations of it. Underneath the surface of the ground, you have this tree, right? And then underneath it, you've got this massive root system that is just perfect. It's like the bigger tree is underneath. And it really does remind us that the, the larger growth truly needs to take place. Where? Below the surface. It's so true. The most important part of it are the things that we cannot see. The root system. What happens below. And this is so true of the Christian life, which is exactly why Jesus said, look... The branches ultimately can do nothing if they're disconnected from the vine. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And unless it stays connected, it cannot, the power, the life cannot flow through. The, it cannot get accessed. And so we always talk about when it comes to following Jesus that the roots mean everything, you guys. It means everything to us. Um, how we grow below the surface means so much. The inner life that ultimately shapes the outer life, if you will. Because when the soul is properly aligning itself, the body follows. And the body is where we live things out. So when we live it out in the body, it tells us the condition of our soul. You see what I'm saying? There's a connection between the two. It's somewhat similar to what Jesus meant when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It always reflects one. Our outer, our outer, our, we express life through our bodies. But what, what life is, but the body reflects, what we, what we live out is reflected by what's happening, really, it's connected to what's going on underneath the surface. So if we want to really get better and grow and keep expanding, pay attention to what's below the surface at the root level of our life. And that leads to the final piece here, which is this. Paul had learned in a very practical way how to do this. He had practiced attaching his heart and his mind, stay with me here, to Jesus through what we would call basic disciplines. And there is no way to have an abounding life in Christ and to access his power, I'm talking about his power for living well and honoring him in our words and deeds and what we leave behind um, with, without seeking to live a, a, a disciplined life. And not a, that's not a joyous life. It's actually, <laughs> you know, think about it, a follower of Jesus, a disciple is a follower, it's a disciplined one. It, it's just talking about our ability to grow, it's, it's about 
being schooled on the basics. It's about applying the basics. It's about doing them consistently and regularly and daily. So we're talking about, yes, taking time for prayer and reflection. Yes, we are. We're talking about being, being committed to reading God's word. If we really want to grow below the surface, we're going to, have to, we're going to need to engage his words because his words are life. My words, he says, they are spirit and they are life. Right? It, it, if we really are serious about it, we're going to have times in our lives where we're really engaging other people who are also making this journey and this, this faith adventure with us in Christ Jesus. And we're going to sharpen one another. We're going to, we're going to get more accountable. We're going, to, we're going to train better. We're going to confess with one another. We're going to share our lives with others who are also trying to grow and move forward. That's why it's important to be part of something that is beyond just our little ourselves. It, it requires connecting with others. That's why we talk about small groups and ministry teams. And, and some of us, God might be, and I'm going to take it one step further. Some of us, it might be, uh, for us, it might look like putting our faith into action so that we think of a tangible way that we can actually act upon the things that we believe. And so maybe some of us, God's calling us up to take a season of, of leading something. Maybe it's time for us to host something. Maybe it's time for us to participate in something that will honor Christ in our lives in a very real and meaningful way. Listen, it may be as, and just stay with me on this one. Many people all over the world right now are beginning to turn their eyes towards the cross and the resurrection. And there's a season, this Easter season, in other tra Christian traditions, this time of Lent is often a time when people intentionally deny themselves for a point of focusing and appreciating. Perhaps this is a season where some of us, we might consider doing something that it would not normally be our custom, but we might actually say, hey, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline myself for the season of time. Maybe it's till Easter. I don't know, an example of saying, look, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a media fast, or I'm going to do something that I, I enjoy, and yet I'm going to pull back. I'm going to change something in my diet. I'm going to do something to connect myself back to Christ in a more intentional focus. And it's going to be a choice that I make, not a rule that I have to follow, a choice that I make so that I can grow deeper below the surface as a disciplined one who has an easier capacity to access the power of Christ in a way that is meaningful to me because, listen, what we're talking about is really this simple, staying close to the great shepherd. That's all we're talking about, so that we might follow him all the days of our lives. Because so easy, listen, you know it and I know it. It's so easy to drift off. It's so easy. We're, you know, I love the imagery. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. All right, what do sheep do? Sheep kind of wander off. <laughs> and sometimes we wander off and it's like he calls us, and says, come back. Okay, you know, <laughs> we say, wait for me, I got to catch up. Or sometimes we say, oh, come, I need your help. Sometimes it's, I'm stuck. I can't get out of here on my own. I got myself tangled up. You see what I'm saying? I, I, that's the image. I, I, I'm in trouble. Help me, Lord. The great shepherd comes and he gets us. My sheep know my voice. And they, he knows me by name. <laughs> he knows us by name. He knows you and he knows me by our name, and he sees it, and he comes for us, and he loves us. He wants us to follow him. Listen, you, look, I'm, what I'm talking about is a constant, consistent life of, of, of relationship with the one who loves us. And that kind of relationship, listen, will allow us to overcome anything. It will allow us to, to move through the, the inevitable temptations of life, the temptations of success, which are often unique, and, and, and temptations towards apathy and and. Uh, spiritual mediocrity and leanness of the soul, but I'm talking not about the good leanness, the bad leanness, the unhealthiness of, a, of an anemic life in God instead of a, a very vibrant, passionate, alive life. So the temptations of, of success, the temptations of duress, 
which contain also their own unique temptations. When things are not going well, when we're in a hard place, when it's constant, consistent, we're being worn down, and in those places where we're tempted to become bitter, cynical, um, lackluster in our, in our, in our you know, approach to life, feeling bad for ourselves, instead of staying in a, in a right place, Paul, what Paul's saying is, I've learned how to get through any of those places, and I've learned how to bring Christ into my life, because I tell you this, he says, I can do all things, whether it's the high, whether it's the low, whether it's the middle place of life, he is with me always, and I've learned this, that I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to keep him close. Let's pray. Lord, you know, we're, you are our lifeline. You are it. This life cannot be lived apart from you. At the end of the day, we're utterly dependent. That might sound so simple. It might sound so basic, but it's so real. And prone to wander, yes, we are. We are indeed, Lord. Sometimes we get ourselves stuck in places we weren't, even, we weren't even trying. We wandered off. You love us. You come for us. You call us. Teach us how to stay close to you. Teach us how to access you, Lord. Not to use you, but to allow your life to flow in us so that others might live by the life that is in us. I pray for a growing, a growing life. I pray that all of us, Lord, would seek to prevail in you and that you would teach us, Lord, that there is nothing, anything that life throws at us of our past, of our future, of a present situation that we find difficult and almost unbearable. I pray that your grace would show up in an extraordinary, amazing way because in our weakness, Lord, your strength can show up and be more than what we need. Teach us this, Lord. Teach us the blessing of desperation and the power of brokenness when it's, when it's turned towards you. You who are our great lifeline, the giver of life, we love you. I pray your blessing, Lord, over these closing minutes, over this final song, over our time of giving. We honor you in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.